everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Hey, buddy. It's good to see you again, or talk to you again, I guess. How's it going? It's going good. It's going good. I am here actually just basking in the sun in uh, in Los Angeles, man. That's freaking awesome. Feels so good. Wonderful. Yes. I don't know if I told you this. I'm solar powered. I'm solar powered. So I'm like some kind of a cyborg that needs sun every freaking couple of days or I go crazy. Oh my gosh. You know what? And on that note, I think I might have uh might have uh, uh talked about it, but there was one of my favorite books that I read last year, sci-fi books called Clara and the Sun, and it was about a cyborg and she needed the sun yeah it was a kazua uh ishigora it was very good so anyways that's my contribution as far as what uh i was been thinking about sci-fi this week <laughs> what's going on with you man not a whole lot actually i have been sending my book it's you know as finished as i'm going to be able to get it now and you know until an editor gets back to me and tells me what things i need to do I've been sending it off to agents and publishers trying to get that done. I started a second novel. Oh, that's awesome. I'm about 25 or 30 pages into that, maybe a little more. What? It's like completely different. It's not science fiction. <laughs> it's not science fiction at all. I like I had originally conceptualized it as a sort of science fiction story, but I, I took a pivot on it. Now it's sort of like a horror story, I guess. It's set in the plains of nebraska in the 1850s it's a western horror story that is sick have you read any uh cormac mccarthy oh yeah i've read every almost every cormac mccarthy novel i'm a huge fan blood meridian is probably my favorite novel ever written or at least very high on my list i'm a big fan of his i mean of course <sighs> you know i'm so a crazy. regular ass dude from the 21st century so yeah i'm like oh yeah Cormac mccarthy's awesome <laughs> but yeah like he's a big inspiration for me and like a lot of other western writers and western films i'm a big western movie person and i tend to write sort of cinematically like i tend to envision scenes in sort of a cinematic way before i write them so uh, that's sort of my approach to writing and having been steeped in western film i feel like it deserved to be a part of my i don't know my catalog mm -hmm. so i wanted to get this one out of the way it's a little different than the other one, but I like, I really like it so far. It's cool because I, you know, like for some reason, I probably because of how much I love the road for me, the road was my favorite book of his, you know, the writing is so beautiful, but you know, when I, when I read like his, like blood Meridian, when I read his writing, I, it's like, dude, a couple tweaks and you got a horror movie here. You know what I mean? Right. Almost all of his stories like walk the line of horror, right? Or at very least, I mean, at very least, thriller. I mean, they're all th they all are thrillers, but they could very well be horrors. Like the judge Ugh. in Blood Meridian is very much like a horror. That's movie. my point exactly. What's really funny is when I'm submitting my my finished manuscript to publishers right now. A lot of these publishers or agents ask for similar books to compare it to, and The Road is my answer among other novels. I've said The Road mm -hmm. as one of the novels to compare it to every place I've sent it so far. So The Road was a big inspiration for my oh, yeah. first novel, and Blood Meridian is a big inspiration for my second novel, even though neither of the books are really that much like the books I just mentioned. Like, my books are not that much like them, but, you know, when you're trying to submit work like that and they ask for a similar novel, you have to pick something that yeah. they might have heard of. He's got another one coming out now, or I think two at the same time. I read the excerpts from them. They deal with... Like, you know, he lives in, I think, uh, Santa Fe or 
somewhere in New Mexico by Los Alamos um, uh, lab. And he has something to do with a think tank there with a bunch of like nuclear scientists. And so this book, it really delves into some of the at least thinking and philosophy of quantum physics and the weirdness of the universe. And so it should be pretty interesting. I'm not sold. From what I read, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Are you just meandering here? Or are you because I mean, he, I mean, some of his books do a bit of meandering. There's no doubt about that. This seemed like, and that's and that's why I love the road because the road did not. The road was so tight. The road is such a straightforward post-apocalyptic story with just like mm-hmm. no fantasy, really, just straight to the point. That's what helped me inspire mine in a way, at least the narrative part of my story. And then another book that was a big inspiration of mine was White Noise, which they just made a film of as well. Ah. Don DeLillo, I just saw it, yeah. It meanders like crazy. The story is about, basically about the meandering nature of like existence. To me, that all that's part of the storytelling process too. So I'm, like, I'm on both ends of the spectrum on this one. What I do like about the meandering thing is it's taking advantage of the novel as a form. You know, the, right. the, the medium of the novel. And really nothing, nothing can you do it better. But sometimes... Like white noise for me meanders, but it's a short book. And so you're, you're like, okay, I'm not, this is an infinite jest. Right. You know what I mean? By David Foster Wallace, where you're just like, what the fuck am I reading here? Right. <laughs> when it comes to David Foster Wallace and even like Brett Easton Ellis, Dude. I'm like, I can, yeah. I can tolerate some of it. Yeah. I like it in small doses, but it's definitely not my go-to reads. You know, hats off to those people that can really dig in to that kind of thing, but that's it's just not me. It's man. hard. Hey, listen, I want to tell you something. I am happy. I'm so happy that we're talking about this, about writing, because today we're going to talk about Mars Attacks, the Tim Burton film. And the card series as well. And the card series. Yeah. And it's such a, a wild thing. But when I watched it, rewatched it, all I kept thinking about was writing and writing technique and plotting and how they chose to take this card series, this 1960s, early 1960s, you know, trading card series and make a, uh, and adapt it into a movie. So I'm stoked that we kind of just fell into that. And uh, let's do it. We always find these accidental segues, but this is a great segue because of what you're talking about, this particular medium being adapted into film. And it's completely unusual for, I mean, to my knowledge, it's the first time ever that a trading card series was adapted into a film. I could be wrong about that. Okay, well, anyway, okay, we're going to go ahead and jump into our subject today, which is, like we've said, Mars Attacks. You know, I think a fan favorite, I think the sort of corny value of it has really kept it alive in a popular culture and we're going to explore the history of it. We're going to explore the origins of the card series and then we'll talk about the movie at length. And then, you know, we'll talk about some of the themes behind it and all that, but I'm really excited for this one. I think this is going to be a good one. Yeah, absolutely. First things first, let's talk about Mars Attacks, the card series, which the film is of course based on Mars Attacks trading card series was released in 1962 by tops trading cards. And it kind of happened like this. Mars Attacks was created when the product developer at Tops, a fellow by the name of Lynn Brown, 
saw Bollywood's cover art for Weird Science number 16. Real quick, are you at a computer right now? Yeah, I am. Yeah, obviously. Do me a favor and go ahead and just Google Weird Science number 16. Weird so Science? And we could talk about it. Number 16. Yeah, Weird Science number 16. You know, Winston, I'm going to tell you something. I, until I rewatched this, I had no idea this was based on a card series. And when I learned that it was based on a card series, all I kept thinking was, I wish I would have fucking known this when the movie came out. It would have been so cool almost to even have like a trailer before the movie. Oh, yeah. But I mean, you're old enough so that when this movie came out, you could have still purchased all of the trading cards before they skyrocketed in value. Wow. Because they're worth like some of the cards, individual cards are worth like 3500 bucks. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Okay, yeah, I'm... I'm, so I'm looking at weird science. That is so dope. It it does look just like the cards in so That's many ways. Really freaking okay, cool. So weird science was a long running. It's weird science dash fantasy, but generally just referred to as weird science. Was a long running comic series by EC Comics, and they featured adult kind of graphic science fiction stories. And usually they were pretty violent and pretty messed up. And Wally Wood was a mainstay at them and. Besides just working for Weird Science, Wallywood was one of the great comic book artists of his generation. I don't want to, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Wallywood, even though he was, without question, one of the all-time greats. But if you're listening to this podcast and you're at a computer, do yourself a huge favor and just Google Weird Science number 16 first. And you, so you can see the similarities between the cover art there and the eventual Mars Attacks aliens. Then just look up Wallywood's art in general because he was a real master, like one of the all-times. So anyway, this fellow, Lynn Brown, got a hold of a copy of this. This was like seven or eight years after this issue had come out. So the issue had been on shelves for a long time, but I guess Lynn Brown hadn't seen it or he pulled it back out of a stack that he had seen. And anyway, it inspired him to create this plot line. And he brought this idea to a co-worker at Tops named Woody Gelman. And the two of these guys sat down together and Brown created – the copy, even though the cards have very little like copy on them, they do have each card does have a tiny bit of copy, like a one sentence or a two sentence of copy on it. That when read from card number one to card number 15, these cards tell a story arc. So they're a narrative card series. And this is a really unique idea. I don't think they're the first ever narrative card series, but they're certainly the most famous narrative card series. So this is sort of a new medium for storytelling that, you know, honestly, it's something that I feel like has been lost. The idea that you could tell a story through 55 individual frames is it's different than a comic book. It's different than a, you know, a graphic novel style. It's different than a film. It's different than a regular novel. It's different than even like a novel with pictures. You know, it's its own idea. Yeah, and, I, you know, that, that's what I'm saying is, like, I thought that if, like, what I wished for, and I know it's not possible, I know it's silly, but I would have loved in the theater if there was, like, a two-minute little mini documentary that kind of showed this is how, this is the origin of this, here are some of the cards that inspired what you're about to see. Because when I re-watched the movie, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. It's like a storyboard artist, right? It's almost like storyboards, but instead of storyboards for every shot, like when you storyboard a film, you storyboard as many shots as you can. Yes. Ideally, or at least as many scenes as you can. The key scenes, and yeah. Typically key scenes. And that in a way is what's going on here, but 
instead of a plan to elaborate on the storyboards, which is, you know, how a filmmaking works that they say, okay, here's what the scene looks like. And they'll create one or two or three or four or five images, rough sketches to indicate how the scene will go. Instead, what they did was they used one image to tell the entire story of the scene. And that's all. And only 55 total in the original work. Okay, and the story of the Mars Attacks is this. I'll go ahead and give you guys the breakdown of the original Mars Attacks. Actually, let me finish telling you about their creation first. I'm not quite done with that. After they did the story arc, the copy, the two of them together, they worked for tops. They both had artistic talent to a degree. So they did the rough sketches for all 55 cards in the set. Then they brought this idea to Wally Wood himself, the artist who had inspired the series in the first place. And Wally Wood looked at him and was like, oh, I'm so on board. And he fleshed out their sketches so that they were more or less complete drawings for each card. They then took those drawings to one of the most famous cover painters of the time, a fellow by the name of Norman Saunders. And Norman Saunders had, just real quick on this guy, when we touch on people that I think are really important to the history of the genre, I think I, I give them a little bit of their own like aside. And Norman Saunders definitely gets one of those. He had been a painter for the covers of tons of pulp magazines, not just science fiction, but you know, like a Western horror drama, you name it. He was one of the go-to pulp painters at the time. And he fleshed these cards out. There was another painter attached, Maurice Blumenfeld, and he did maybe a handful of the cards, but Saunders came back and painted on top of those too to give them finishing touches. So Norman Saunders really is the guy who like gave them their iconic look along with Wally Wood. Two guys who are really important to the history of science fiction are one of the reasons that the this card had such success is because they had, you know, this look from these two powerhouses of art at the time. Okay, so anyway, they get all the cards finished. And then they try test marketing them under a dummy company, Bubbles Incorporated, one of Top's trading cards, dummy corporations called Bubbles. And they marketed under the name Attack from Space. So originally, the very first cards that were out there were called Attack from Space. So those cards, if you can get Attack from Space cards, you're rich already. Wow. Yeah, very few of those exist. And sales of those cards were sufficient enough, so they decided to expand and expand the marketing and everything. And then they did that. They changed the name to Mars Attacks so they could roll out a, like a new ad campaign. And they were immensely successful. They were hugely successful. They flew off the shelves. Now I'm going to tell you the story of the cards, which I think will help explain some of the popularity. Okay, so the story of the cards is this. The Martian government is corrupt on Mars. And they know that Mars is set to just explode, that the destruction of Mars is imminent. So they fool the Mars population into becoming militarized and going and claiming Earth as their new homeworld. Without telling them that Mars is in imminent danger, they just do it under the name of, you know, a patriotic cause. And they go to Earth and they start brutally murdering every human being on Earth in every country in the world. And the cards were really famous for all these like really graphic portrayals of not just the killing of people, but like torture and like wholesale slaughter and the destruction events and that kind of thing. So it wasn't just an army invading. It was like an army of sadists invading. Eventually, the Earth forces push back and they take the fight to Mars and they go to Mars and they defeat the army there on Mars. And as they're leaving, Mars blows up. And that basically is how the story ends with, you know, the plot basically being over because the it appears that the Martian race is doomed to extinction. That's the story arc of the 55 cards in the original Mars Attacks series. Now, 
one thing I want to point out, like I was saying earlier about how all science fiction is based on previously existing science fiction. We've done an episode based on the story that this is very clearly based on, and that was War of the Worlds. Yeah. This is almost identical to the plot of War of the Worlds. For sure. Yeah. The plot of the War of the Worlds, Martians know that their planet is dying. They see that Earth has resources, so they invade Earth and try to kill everyone. Mm-hmm. It's almost identical. The only difference is how it ends. So when I say that all popular themes are based on pre-existing themes, I, I mean it. It's pretty much universal. 100% of the time, whatever science fiction you're reading has its roots in some other science fiction that already existed or some other work that already existed. You know, take that to heart as a writer or as a reader. When people are like, oh, it's so much like this. I'm like, yeah, well, that's how this works. You know, that's the name of the game. Yeah, Star Wars, you know what I mean? Kurosawa. Yeah, exactly. We've talked about it. We've talked about it from the very, very beginning of this podcast. If you guys listen to the podcast regularly, you know that this is a recurring theme. Okay, so, and like I said, these cards came out, they were extremely successful. There have been some scholars, one scholar named Nathan Brownstone. Let me read his quote for you here, and it'll I think it'll put some perspective on this. The Mars Attacks cards achieved their popularity at the very time when the Cuban Missile Crisis captured the headlines, the moment when the Cold War came closest to becoming radioactively hot. That was the when a brutal zero-sum game scenario for humanity to survive, the Martians must die, established a solid niche in American popular culture. So the idea is this that we have this force that's invading us. They seem to have incredible destructive power. And it was a real reality for people at the time in America. And it had been for some time, but in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, I wasn't alive then. Mm -hmm. You weren't alive then. So this is a little bit before our time, but you were alive in the 80s. You were an adult in the 80s. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you remember the looming threat of nuclear war. And, you know, know, that's such a recurrent theme that, absolutely, you know, I was a little young even then to really have it impact me in a way I never really was. I never felt that paranoia or, or that like fear. But, you know, if you look at like some great works of fiction, I mean, even Watchmen, I mean, that is the theme of, of the recurring theme of Watchmen with the ticking clock and this close. I mean, that's the whole fucking thing. Yeah. We talked about it with when we did our Watchmen episode. We talked about it when we did Godzilla. Yeah. We talked about it when we did Akira. Mm-hmm. You know, this the threat of nuclear war played a gigantic role on the imaginations of not just creators, but of readers and fans as well. You know, it it was something that was present in everybody's mind for a really long time. And Mars Attacks, even though there's no nuclear bombs in Mars Attacks. The idea of it is still, you know, more or less the same, just immense destructive power. I think it's important to understand that we have this collective psyche, you know, for our society, for our culture, you know, and every culture, every country does. And that collective psyche, it is, you know, when it's feeling like our own brains, when we feel fear, you know, we need to manifest and, and express that. And it's really cool to see how that collective psyche actually expresses these things through sci-fi and fiction. One of the things science fiction does, and we've talked about this again as well, I love it when we get on a topic that solidifies points we already made in previous episodes. And this one's doing that in folds. Yeah. But yeah, one of the things that fiction does, and science fiction especially does, is it 
addresses the fears we have. You know, it, it gives us it gives us a perspective on, you know, our deep rooted fears, our apprehension for the future, our apprehension for the things that are happening in our reality at the time. And, you know, the Cold War was certainly that. And here's another thing. The fear of nuclear destruction has definitely abated in American society or worldwide society, but it's still just as there as it ever was. I think it's taken. Oh, didn't they just move the doomsday clock up just like a couple weeks ago where they're like, this thing in Ukraine is in, in China is an issue. And it's we are now going we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. The nuclear deproliferation occurred and a lot of weapons were dismantled, but there are still way more nuclear weapons than necessary to destroy the Earth or at least destroy the human population on Earth, basically all animal population on Earth, many times over. And they're all armed and ready to go, you know, so that hasn't actually gone away. It's just because the politicians on either side aren't talking about it now. It's fallen into the background. But like you said, it's very possible that this will re-enter the big picture, the main shot of our minds pretty soon or is already doing so. Okay, so anyway, these cards came out and like I already mentioned, they depict graphic violence and some sexual stuff as well, even though there's no direct nudity or anything on the cards. And they were marketed. But it's very subjective. <laughs> very subjective. Yeah, it's super suggestive of like sexual stuff. And you could, guys, I highly recommend going online and just looking at these original series cards. They are, I mean, besides. Before you rewatch. Yeah, before you rewatch it. It's so cool. Besides just being a cool piece of history, they're great art. They're just really fun to look at. And if you're a science fiction fan, I mean, it's a must. You got to go check them out. And you can find all 55 cards online. Okay, but because of that, they were being marketed towards children. And there was a huge amount of public backlash to these cards. There was a real moral panic surrounding these cards. And Tops initially responded by repainting 13 of the cards so that they the violence was toned down and the sexuality was toned down. But even after they did that, the district attorney of Connecticut started a probe into Tops. Because, okay, you guys have to keep in mind, this was a time when anything you did that was outside of the line was deemed un-American, you know, and they could stick you with this label and it would ruin you completely. There was no getting over this. You were blacklisted from not just business, but from society itself. It was the era of McCarthyism and all that. So there was this huge paranoia and like this overflowing sense of patriotism and nationalism. Yeah, yeah. And even though these cards were very nationalistic, they showed American soldiers. They also showed soldiers of other countries as well. You know, it wasn't America versus the Martians. It was the human race versus the Martians. So it had armies of different countries fighting back as well. And, you know, that played a part into them becoming a target of sort of a cancel campaign. And people talk about cancel culture. You know, hold on. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. So forgive me. Go, go. <laughs> okay. You know, cancel culture is this buzzword that's going around right now used by conservatives to attack liberals and say that liberals want to cancel everything. Historically speaking, that is so far from the truth. Historically speaking, conservatives are the ones that cancel everything based on religious stuff, based on nationalist stuff. I mean, McCarthyism is cancel culture. That's what we're talking about here. A district attorney, is a, that's a criminal investigation because somebody released cards, trading cards. I mean, that is cancel culture. If you, if, I, first of all, I don't think cancel culture is a real thing. People just react to things 
and there are campaigns. And that's just how it is. That's how human life has really always been like that. It, it's nothing new. The fact that people are saying, oh, these days is whatever gets you canceled. Come on, man. People have been under the microscope since forever. You know, it might be a little bit exacerbated now because the internet definitely allows people to make these campaigns move faster. But I mean, it's always existed. So that's my tangent. When people hit me with the, the cancel culture thing, I, it makes me want to roll my eyes. I'm like, okay, so you know nothing about history. I understand. And it's been going on forever. The churches are targeting Alice Cooper and whatever else. You know, it's always the same thing. Anyway. Okay. So because of that, they ended up having to halt production of the series altogether. So the series really only ran for like one year. And because of that, the value of these trading cards, like I mentioned earlier, is tremendous. They're tremendously valuable cards. They're a lot were printed for such a short amount of time because they were really popular and they just printed as many as they could. But like I say, they've got a lot of value because of all this history we just discussed. Okay, so that was all the way back in 1962. And then nothing happened with this franchise or this intellectual property for two, really almost three decades. Started making a bit of a resurgence in the 1980s. They did a reprint in 1984, 22 years after the original set, they did a reprint of the original 55 cards and a 56 card and those were released through Renata Galasso Incorporated with the partnership with Tops, and that had a small amount of success a little bit of success but then in 1994 Tops said you know what to hell with it let's try to our best to bring it back and they went full on and really tried to remarket the cards again and they were pretty successful. They had a pretty large amount of success with this. It wasn't anywhere near the uh, the phenomenon that it was in the 60s. But, you know, trading cards, I don't know if you remember this, but in the early 90s, trading cards had a huge renaissance. Not just comic cards and sci-fi cards. Marvel was putting out tons and tons of card series. Also baseball cards, football cards, hockey cards. Like the, the trading card industry reached like a peak in the early 90s. So these got brought back. That makes sense. I mean, that was like Magic the Gathering and all that, right? Wasn't that, was that? Yeah, Magic the Gathering, yeah. you're absolutely, yeah, yeah, exactly. And all of the, yeah, cards became a big deal. I remember when I was a kid, I had several binders full of different types of trading cards. Wow. And Infinite Worlds prints trading cards now because of, you know, my love for the kind of throwback style of things. Like in the early 90s, they were doing it as a throwback. And now I'm doing it as a throwback to that. That's so, so cool. That's why we do that's the Infinite so cool. Worlds trading cards. The only cards I ever had were Star Wars cards. And I have sets of several different cards on my shelf. I had all these Marvel trading cards that are like the Marvel masterpieces and several other trading card sets, but I've lost them over the course of time. But right now I have the Alien, the complete series of that through a buddy of mine who runs a business called Collectible Science Fiction. If you go on Instagram, just type in Collectible Science Fiction and he puts up rare and difficult to find books and that kind of thing up for grabs <laughs> via Instagram. And he always comes up with really cool stuff. But we had a deal, he and I had worked at a deal where when I bought stuff from him, he would send me a pack of the Mobius trading cards. And I got so lucky with these. Just using the individual packs of the cards, the original packs, I was able to complete the Mobius trading card series, including like the foil cards. That wow. I never even heard of those. They're awesome. <laughs> the Mobius trading cards are so cool. Wow. And I have a few other card sets as well. And I, I'm always keeping an eye out for ones that I think are especially cool. There are plenty out there that are all right, you know, that I wouldn't mind owning. But I like to get the ones that I'm like, that's one I've got to have. Anyway, so because of this resurgence with the card set, Tim Burton, the film director, who was 
at the time, one of the hottest film directors. In fact, at the time, he had the most heat of any film director ever, maybe, because his first several movies were all gigantic pop culture successes. He made an impact on film like few others had. And maybe they weren't the monetary successes, like giant blockbusters, even though Batman was a gigantic blockbuster. They had a huge cultural impact and they changed sort of the milieu of popular culture in a great deal, in a way that still affects us now. Oh, yeah. Like the Tim Burton style is like, a huge part of the mainstream and it remains that way. And he, you know, he, his first several movies in a row really solidified that. He had a singular voice. His look and style was Tim Burton. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Burton all day. And you know, Tim Burton fans, it's all like a cult almost. And very few directors have this going for them. There are other directors that have a very singular style, a very like unique and noticeable style, but few have quite the success marketing that same style over and over again that Tim Burton has. You know, I mean, I'm trying to think of other directors that you could sort of compare. Maybe you could say uh, Wes Anderson might be. A- yeah, because Wes, Wes Anderson has his own look, right? It's like those two directors, like they cinematography for them is like very, when you see their cinematography, just even a still photo, yeah. you're like, oh, that's that's Wes Anderson for sure. Right. You know, or that's that's Tim Burton. I mean, they definitely, definitely have a look. Tim Burton was one of the first to really try that. There are definitely other directors with distinct styles, but there are very few before him that had distinct styles that were so, what's the word I want to say, stylized. He had this like wildly, you know, and has this very wildly stylized, very eccentric look to his films. And it really caught on with popular culture. So mm-hmm. he was coming in super hot, coming in just super hot. He Before this, he had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Batman, which was a gigantic success, Edward Scissorhands, and Beetlejuice, of course. And he nailed it. It's, 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 he remind, his style reminds me, and maybe because he grew up around you know, in LA like this, it reminds me of Disneyland type set. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's very, it's this weird kind of brought to life animation kind of a thing. I don't know how to describe, but I love it. Yeah. Almost like everything's animatronic almost. So, you know, he was coming in as one of the like most sought after directors of the world. He basically got carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to do. So he was originally approached by screenwriter Alex Cox. Mm -hmm. And Alex Cox wanted to make a two-part film from using Mars Attacks, the original card franchise, and another card series that was marketed after Mars Attacks by Tops called Dinosaurs Attack. If you're not familiar with Dinosaurs Attack, it's pretty similar to Mars Attacks, but with dinosaurs. Like, it's also a really fun card series, you know, but we're not going to go into it too much because that film never ended up getting made because this was the early 90s, and that's when Steven Spielberg released Jurassic Park which was one of the most successful films ever made. And the rumors were already out there for a sequel that would be set in LA. And that's basically what happened in the Dinosaurs Attack film. So the idea was canned because there's no sense in releasing a dinosaurs coming to LA and attacking and eating people when that movie is already out there. You know, not that Hollywood shies away from that. You know, they Deep Impact Armageddon came out the same year. It could have been one of those situations, but it didn't end up that way. That actually, honestly, thank goodness. And I'll go into why I thank goodness for that in a little while. 
Okay, so this idea was brought to Tim Burton, and Tim Burton loved the idea because Tim Burton, I'm sure you all know, was a gigantic fan of Ed Wood, the B-movie film director. If you guys haven't seen his film, Ed Wood, please go see it. Please go see it. It is a yeah. masterful film. It is so good. It is my second favorite of his movies. Big Fish is my favorite movie of his, and then after that is Ed Wood. But it's a beautiful, masterful film, and one of the greatest, I guess, I don't know what exactly how I want to put it, but like a great tribute to a director. But it's like a no-holds-back tribute, too. So I, I really recommend that one. Anyway, Ed Wood was famous for making movies for making what Hollywood considered to be the worst movies out there. And this was, he was making them at a time when bad movies were like the name of the game. Like when making a crappy movie that had a small budget and only had like a three week long production period, because at the time people were going to these movies at drive-in theaters and going to like double features and the idea was they weren't paying that much attention to the movie, if you get my drift. Like, teenagers were taking their dates to the uh, drive-ins, and the movie was on in the background, you know, while they did teenager stuff. <laughs> and, you know, that's totally true, and those movies were very successful. They cost the studios very little, and the, nobody really complained because they missed most of the movie anyway, and uh, the studio still got their profit. So he decided that he wanted to do that, and he also wanted to make a movie that was sort of like a tribute to the big time disaster movies that he had grown up with. What are you thinking? Like Charlton Heston and uh, Tower, what was it? Towering Inferno. Yeah. Towering Inferno, Towering Inferno. Thank you. Towering Inferno is actually the example. So he like movies of that type at the time were really popular, like big with that had a huge cast that had a cast of tons of famous actors, like an ensemble cast. And he took that to heart. So they greenlit this picture and he went to work on Mars Attacks. And now we're going to talk about the movie. We talked about the ensemble cast. We'll start there. Honestly, I don't think there's ever been a movie with a more star-studded cast than this one. It was top-notch star at that time. Yes. A-lister after A-lister after A-lister. It was crazy. And even, even featured like some like... Like new up and coming actors who became A-listers like Jack Black. I'm going to read the cast list to you guys. And you have to keep in mind that this is 1996 when this movie came out. So they're not A-listers now in some of these people. And some of them are now, like you said. But at the time, they were either an A-lister or on their way to being an A-lister. And we've got Jack Nicholson, who plays two roles in this film. Glenn Close, Annette Benning, Pierce Brosnan, who was just became James Bond. Danny DeVito, Martin Short, <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker, Michael J. Fox, Tom Jones, who a lot of the younger audience won't know who Tom Jones is, but he was a giant, he was one of the most famous singers of all time. Pam Greer, Jim Brown, who was a gigantic football star. Then it has Jack Black and Natalie Portman in really early roles. And they both, of course, became A-listers eventually. And like a cast list like that, I mean, it's really hard to, I don't, I have trouble thinking of a film with a greater ensemble cast than that. It's one of it's if it's not the greatest ensemble cast, it's very high on the list. It's top 10 for sure. Yeah. No, it for sure. It was a huge huge freaking movie in that respect. Um where it, it, you're like how did he get Well, of course, how did he get it? It was Tim Burton. He was at the pinnacle and peak of his career. You know, and it's a great cool concept, but 
I want to tell you what I think. Okay, yeah. Okay? Let's hear it. Because I, I think that you can then come back and give me your take. But when I watched this movie and re- when I rewatched it, I thought it was a complete mess. Oh. In the sense, in the sense, here, here's, and that, this is why I'm circle, I'm going to circle back okay, to yeah. what we were earlier saying uh, about writing. And I'm glad that we use that as an intro because for me, the writing in, of the script of this movie was a complete disaster in the sense that let's go back to basics, okay? Who is the hero here? Right. <laughs> Who is the protagonist here? Who am I following? Who do I care about? Is it Jim Brown? Is it, you know what I mean? Is it the kid? Lucas Haas. Yeah, and it, it was a really strange decision because like you said, you're not wrong at all about this. You're 100% right. And I agree that overall, this movie has so much wrong with it. And here's the thing. This movie has so much wrong with it but everyone loves it anyway. Yeah. And that's a really unique, that's a really unique thing in Hollywood. And that's a really unique thing in popular culture, but we're going to definitely not spare the rod here. We're going to tell you what's wrong with this movie before we tell you why we love it. And and in a big way, in a big way, like it was so wrong because I was like, you have every single element in place. How could you get the script so wrong? You know, and I, I'll say this. I love I love some ensemble movies, right? That's clearly what this was. Right. Royal Tenenbaums by Wes Anderson is one of my top movies in the world and then it's it's an ensemble. But the difference is is that every character in that movie in Royal Tenenbaums has an arc. We start with them with their character flaw and throughout the plot every single one of them their character flaw is addressed. You know, they might not become the hero. It might not be a hero's journey, right. but they do reach some growth and at least resolution to say, all right, life's not perfect. Maybe I didn't achieve the Hollywood ending, but I got some peace. And at this, I didn't know anything about anybody. There were no character flaws that were addressed. It was just, oh, here's a character. And he's doing this. And here's a character like Jim Brown. Yeah, he wanted to go connect. And that was kind of part of it, right? With this, he wanted to be with yeah. his estranged family. And okay, so I think all of them got a character arc, but they were all such paper thin character arcs. Oh. The only character and who I consider to be the protagonist of this film is Lucas Haas. I don't know the character's name off the top of my head, but he's the young kid from the trailer park who's trying to protect his grandmother. I mean, he has the fullest character arc of any of them. And it, to me, this is the strangest decision of all because with this cast of all of these A-listers, he chooses to use a complete unknown actor as his protagonist for the film. And not to be hateful or anything, but he was not that strong. He was not, I don't think, really capable of carrying a big budget film like this. No disrespect. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. And please, guys, when I am critical... It's not because I'm trying to be a hater. It's just that I don't think he had the, I guess, the experience as an actor to be put in the situation he was put in. And, you know, it shows he was in almost nothing else for the rest of his career. That was like his almost his like one hit wonder kind of situation. And it wasn't even a hit. His poor thing for me that this movie in that respect, and I think they came out the same year, was very Independence Day. It was like, oh, my God, this is completely he is like this character trailer park blah 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 of the kid who wasn't 
who was in the trailer, whose dad was the pilot in Independence Day. But I, I will go back. I want, I want to go back to the whole character arc thing. The problem, mm-hmm. like Jim Brown had this like journey that he wanted to go on, right? That where he was going to go back and get with his family and help rescue the earth and blah, blah. Okay. The problem with it was like Royal Tenenbaums or even Will Smith's character in Independence Day. In Royal Tenenbaums and Independence Day, we saw it wasn't just the physical on the surface journey of getting back and going somewhere and doing something. There was a character flaw like in Royal Tenenbaums that was internal that was also addressed at the same time. So the, the scripts were working on multiple levels. And so they were gratifying in the sense that when they got to the end, you got this double payoff. Whereas this movie, there was none of that. There was no, like you said, the characters were so paper thin because we never saw ever internally. And maybe because the argument will be, well, it's a satire. It's a, you know, this, it's that. But, you know, look at, look at like, Look at look at a movie like uh, Kingpin or something, you know, some of these other comedies, you know, or even or even to me, this reminded me a lot. The tone of this reminded me of Men in Black. Right. But in in Men in Black, Will Smith's character and Tommy Lee Jones, they had like deep, deep internal character flaw issues that were addressed in the movie. They change as people. So like you said, because Tim Burton approached this movie as an homage to B-movies, you know, it does feel like he intentionally gave these characters these, like, flimsy personas to reflect how movies were when he was growing up. And in a way, you know, like, when you look at this as, like, pastiche or when you look at it as, you know, a novel concept, you know, it does succeed. It does succeed in on that level, like, it, you know it does because we're still talking about it now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing a whole episode about it. Mm-hmm. So in a way, he does succeed at doing that. And it is beloved for that reason. No characters are more paper thin than the Martians. <laughs> and of course, you're not trying to give the Martians humanity, but they're parodies of themselves You know, in this movie. And here's another thing. The Martians in this movie, they made the choice to use CGI in this movie. And I will be the first to admit, okay, I'm a big CGI hater. You guys know that. I don't like CGI. I think CGI takes away from films more than it adds. But I will be the first to say that for 1996, the CGI in this movie is pretty good. For the era and for how much CGI is in the movie, it's mostly pretty good. Like all CGI from the 90s, there's some still some pretty bad stuff in it. But they brought in Industrial Light and Magic. They brought the best team they possibly could to do this. But here's the thing. They had originally planned to use stop motion animation to make these characters. And I will go to my grave thinking that had they used stop motion animation, this movie would have been so much better. Because he was trying to go for that classic B-movie thing. And what better way to do it than to emulate the style of Ray Harryhausen, who did the stop motion for many of those old B-movies and was copied by other stop motion artists And instead, it ended up being this weird mishmash of like throwback style and like New Jack style. And because of that, I think not only does the script have a lot of mush in it, the visuals end up having a lot of mush in it because of that too. Like the entire overall visual experience ends up that way. And I say all of this, and we say all of this, 
But we both know that this movie has got something special about it anyway, that the that it rises above all of these faults. It rises above all of these flaws. And I'll say this, in the end, it does exactly what Tim Burton wanted it to do, and that is be a B movie. Yeah. And by B movie, I mean a bad movie that people like. Anyway. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's very true. That is a way to freaking you know, celebrate all of the horrible mistakes of this movie. Dude, I want to bring one more thing up. Sure. What the hell was Martin Short doing? <laughs> he had no dialogue. He had, like, he, he, he had no dialogue. He would be in a scene making faces. And it, dude, it was so B-movie. You're right. You almost have to... You almost have to point out. And at the time, Martin Short was a pretty big star too. I know. You almost have to point out all this shit because then you're right. Then you go back and you're like, oh, that's genius. Let's take away all the dialogue from Martin Short. Just make him make stupid faces, turn scenes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we pointed out all of these flaws already. And and we've talked about how we like it anyway, because, you know, it is lovably corny. In a lot of ways. And, you know, that is something that Tim Burton was certainly aiming for. And in the end, after a long stretch and in retrospect, you know, you can see that he did achieve that. But the movie itself was also a huge, not a huge flop, but a flop. It had a budget of $70 million. Somehow they made this movie for only $70 million. I don't know how that happened because just the CGI alone must have been massively expensive. And the cast, are you kidding? But the movie only brought in $100 million. And while that looks like $30 million profit on paper, that doesn't include all the marketing and all that. I think I read the marketing was like $20 million. So it was basically like for Tim Burton to, on, to do with that cast – to have a break even is definitely a flop because the studios are like, listen, we gotta, we're gonna be carrying a lot of movies that maybe will make money, but don't. That's the nature of even publishing books, is we've got a stable of people of projects. We know that the Stephen King is gonna make enough money to at least carry 10 of these other books, so that if we maybe we'll have a great year. You know, if one of these other books comes on, but at least we'll have a really good year because the Stephen King book is going to do really well. And that's what they were hoping with this. And this didn't. It made no money. Yeah, it made almost no money. And lots of movies don't make money. You know what I mean? But this did a lot to derail the Tim Burton hype train. Even though he made Ed Wood, Ed Wood was a commercial failure. It only had a budget of 18 million, but it only made 13.8 million. So it lost $4 million without talking about its advertising costs that's an actual flop so that was the movie he made before this but the unlike mars attacks ed wood was a critical slam dunk people loved it it was a critics loved this movie as they should because it was a like i've said before is a brilliant touching enduring movie too i watched it not that long ago and it really is as good as i i thought it was on a repeat viewing and Martin Landau won an Oscar for it. But because it was a box office failure, then followed up by Mars Attacks, which was a huge budget and a box office failure and critically slammed. Like even critics didn't like it at the time. Audiences didn't love it. I think audiences were lukewarm about it because like you're it's like us. 
there's so much wrong with it, but there's still some things to love about it. You know, to this day, we're all, you know, when we hear act, you know, we still respond to that. It's still, it's still like a, a moment for us, but audience is really lukewarm for it. Then after this, the next film he made was his remake of Planet of the Apes. I love that movie. <laughs> and it was another really bad attempt to throw back yeah. movie. I think it's a little more hate than it deserves. It does deserve some hate. You know, and it deserves to be a failure. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed that movie, but I, you know, I get it. I like the campiness of it compared to the new ones. I like that better. A lot of people hate that movie and think it's the worst thing he's ever done. I personally don't. I think it's better than it's given credit for. To me, the best Planet of the Ape movies were made in the 1960s and 70s. <laughs> I'll stand by that. We're going to we're gonna eventually do a Planet of the Apes episode too, y'all. I love Planet of the Apes. The thing is that I really want to have a guest on for that episode, and we're having trouble getting the guest on. Okay. So, and that's really the holdup okay. on that. We've been wanting to do it for a long time, actually, but we've been like back Ugh. and forth with this guest for a long time. So we really want to do it, but we might give up on having the guest to just do the episode. It's not like we have a lot of guests anyway, you know? Yeah. Anyway, th this because of this movie, it really tarnished Tim Burton's career. And then he, it was like a commercial failure, then another big budget commercial failure, then another big budget movie that, listen to this number, it had a budget of $100 million. It made $362 million. Wow. That's a giant blockbuster. Giant. He redeemed himself in terms of staying a darling of the studios, but he lost a lot of audience with this like little run in the late 90s, early 2000s. I remember. I and, remember. Yeah, yeah. so... Anyways, this was a this was a freaking cool one in the sense that I learned. I'm glad you you know when you suggested this one, I was like, yeah, really. But I learned so much by going through those cards, and then that kind of unlocked this piece of sci-fi history that, to be honest, I really wasn't aware of. And so that period is rad. I think that's why I like doing episodes on some of these properties is because a lot of people, I mean, I know obviously a lot of science fiction fans listen to this podcast and a lot of science, there are pl plenty of people who listen to this podcast who are more knowledgeable about all of the stuff than I am. I don't, like I've always said, I don't ever claim to be an expert. I definitely have to, you know, learn in order to be able to do these episodes. So I'm not going in as an expert on all of them, but it's definitely a lot of fun to bring these backstories that make somewhat irrelevant seeming things become instantly more relevant besides hanging out with tooth that's the most fun thing about this podcast <laughs> thank you so much that was so kind i appreciate it i love it too man i love it too yeah this, right, was this was a great, a great one. one for sure for sure jinx <laughs> um we'll have to decide on the uh, on the next one yeah we'll figure something cool out for you guys i have some ideas but i think i picked this one so i think it's tooth's turn to pick one so we'll see what we do next yes let me uh <laughs> let me think about that I, well i have to figure out one that's going to be as good as this one so let me uh let me kind of dwell on okay that. yeah no, no hurry all right brother that was freaking awesome i gotta jump into the sun hopefully and uh we'll be in touch later man late <laughs> guys if you're enjoying the infinite worlds podcast you could definitely check out more infinite worlds related stuff by visiting our website infiniteworldsmagazine.com there you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. 
You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.